Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? <laughs> Is there a more overused sentence formulation in football punditry and indeed management speak currently than if you'd offered me situation X at time Y, I'd have snapped your bloody hand off? This has in the past couple of years become almost ubiquitous, particularly it seems in relation to the Ireland men's national team who kept falling backwards into major tournament playoff games no matter how many games we lost there. That went on for a couple of years at least. Well, last Friday I predicted a convincing 5-0 win for Manchester City in Saturday's FA Cup final and after 13 seconds of the game in Wembley if you'd offered me a 2-1 loss for Man United well I'd have snapped your bloody hand off. Hello and welcome to today's second bank holiday football show. Hello there Ken. Hello Kieran, how are you doing? Was that overly pessimistic? Uh, because I thought my original prediction was actually going to be pretty much on the money. Yeah, well, after I thought it was only 12 seconds, but maybe it was 13. Um, well, I, I, I allowed myself a second to digest there then, if we were going to disagree on the exact uh, goal time of Ilkay Gundogan's well, first what, goal. What did you think? I mean, what was your what was your reaction? Obviously, we don't have... It would be better if we had live uh, recordings yeah. of this, but, I mean, you can perhaps... What was the circumstance? I mean, you were there. You'd probably psyched yourself up. You were thinking. You were probably rubbed your hands together a couple of times. Yeah. Get into these, into these lads. Into these early lads. Uh, early, you know, an early game reducer, perhaps. You know, that sort of thing seems to really work against this Man City team. But uh, no, I'll tell you what happened, Ken. Yeah. Uh, I had an appointment with the dog groomer. Three p.m. Oh, for fuck's sake! Like, uh, you, you've got you're, you're kidding me here. But as it turned out. Listen, I took a risk. I landed up at the dog groomers, 10 to 3. Mm. And who do I see walking out? Only the previous customer. Oh. Uh, looking great, by the way, as well. Looking absolutely brilliant. That's good. So I was like, have I come a little early? Maybe this is the perfect time. And uh, the dog groomer in question said, you're absolutely spot on. Hand her over to me there and you can be on your way. And I met it back to the couch Oh, with about maybe 30 seconds to spare before the game actually <laughs> so uh, you kicked did, off. you did see it. So I gave it the full FA Cup final build-up. I know I was talking on, on Friday about, you know, it's, it's a proper FA Cup final. I obviously had completely forgotten about this dog grooming appointment. Mm. But, um, so I saw none of the build-up. N- uh, none of Abide uh, with me. None of, I'm sure they met some dignitaries of some sort on the pitch or whatever. I saw none of that. All I saw was basically the teams breaking up from their pre-match huddle and 
Ilkay Gundogan taking the the ball the kickoff. Yeah, and that and that was that, that's basically all it was. So it wasn't like I'd spent you know sort of the previous hour and a half you know psyching myself up, building myself up mentally, spiritually, emotionally for a Manchester United um, for a, a, a bravura Manchester United performance. Yeah, but nevertheless, at the exact moment that the goal went in, Ken, yeah, I did think. This could be a long old day. <laughs> this could be a long, it was, long day. It was the goal. It was the moment in a cup final of any kind that was definitely most like a joke. Um, but I, yeah, I think you had to, you had to actually have have absorbed some of the build up to really, you know, to. I mean, as as the way that you saw it, it was just a a, a punchline, you know. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with, I didn't get the lengthy setup with the build up and all of the stuff and all, you know the the people marching around and the, the songs and you know Fergie, yeah, Fergie there. Um, Booed, I believe, by the Man City fans. Uh, who, <laughs> I don't know if they cheered Summerbeat. There was videos also showing uh, the Man City players walking out. Apparently, uh, well, not uh, all of the Man United players were obviously greeting Alex Ferguson, um, who remains the you know the yes. ma- the main man. Um, but on the other side, the City players, if they knew who Mike Summerbeat was, uh, yeah, they yeah. didn't seem to be. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they had they had the game face on. It was it was no time yeah. for chit chat with Mike Summerby. Is, is that is is that John Stones as Olaf? What's he doing out here? <laughs> and you know, basically asking each other all this that the anthems, Prince William, you know, all of this uh, stuff. And then it kicks off and bang, it's one 0 It was just it was absolutely <laughs> incredible. I mean, what a goal as well! What a goal yeah. by Gunnigan! What a uh, an impact he's been having over the last. I mean, it's. I think it's. Is it five goals in his last six games and five in the previous forty-four? Some. Some. He scored as many goals basically in the last few weeks as he had in the in the all rest of the season, which has just brought him up to his season average. He usually scores about this many goals. Uh, it's not as though he's he's completely uh, hit a new level um, this uh, season goals wise. It's just that they've all come at a. At, uh, th- at the best time, really. I mean, he mm. he has a habit of this. He obviously he did it last season on the last day as well. And what a goal! And you know, and, and part of the build up to the game as well. You know, John McKenzie, who we spoke to uh, um, on the podcast about Leeds a, a couple of weeks back, I had uh, watched his uh, one of his TFO videos, a sort of a tactical video, you know, which mm. had the, the, the title along the lines of, you know, how can, how Eric Ten Hag can stop Manchester City, you know? Uh, and so it was kind of uh, trying to think about the problem, of, you know, if you have to manage Manchester United in this game, what do you do against this team that is, is dominating everybody? Um, obviously, they had, they had beaten them. Uh, back in January, I guess um, I can't remember if it was January, but they beat them at Old Trafford in the you know having lost heavily in the first uh, league match. But since then, uh, John McKenzie makes the point that um, City have changed their system completely. You know, so in the in that first game, they had a, a back four. You know, they had Foden and Mares uh, on the wings. Since then, pretty much from that point. They've changed the basic uh, structure. You know, it's now it's a back three, Stones in midfield, 
uh, Grealish and Silva on the wings and a different style and a different problem to solve. And so the video, I don't know, went on for 16 or 17 minutes talking about the various problems presented by, you know, Man City's build-up structure, you know, the um, how do you press, where do you press, if you press high, what happens in behind, you know, City obviously doing all these little Roberto De Zerbi three-man uh, mm -hmm. moves, you know, get into the, uh, you know, it's all about like getting a man into the, area that a guy who is pressing has just run out of in order to press. So yeah. if he's pressing in one direction, then that means there's space where behind him. So that's where we, that's where we turn up and that's where we're thinking about getting the ball to, you know, all these types of things and how, you know, how you can sort of, uh, what, what players you should pick, what sort of formations you should make. You know, he, he came to the conclusion, I think, um, that it's kind of a four-two-two-two. United should be going with, you know, take Ericsson out of there. I remember it was one of the recommendations. You know, basically accept that you're not going to be able to stop them building up. Try and press them more aggressively in the in the middle third, you know, and then hope to get Rashford away, you know, and so on and so forth. This, and you're just thinking yeah. about all this, thinking about them spending all week, you know, looking at this problem. I mean, forget about sixteen or seventeen minutes. I mean, this has probably been like a month's work. Uh, uh, like, how, how how can we keep a clean sheet against these? And then just this bang, mob. And, and, and almost a almost a contemptuous like a, a route yeah, one. Get it launched to the big man. Get it launched. You know you got you got big early. The second ball. Big early. Yeah. Who, who's expecting it all the way? Because if you look at what happens, uh, Ortega. I mean the ball goes. Cunningham goes straight back to Ortega, and then Ortega's there. Um, and you know it's not as though people run up and, and try and put him under immediate pressure. You know United are thinking now we're we're too clever for that. We're not gonna we're not gonna play it the way you want. And then he launches it, and you see that Haaland, and he launches it quite accurately to an area where Haaland, who has backed away to the to the right wing, can get a good running jump at this, you know, running towards the ball, as though he was a defender, um, to run uh, at a ball that's coming towards him and get there ahead of Casemiro, who's kind of backpedaling a little bit and, and beats him easily in the air. Then it goes through, and it was Lindelof then, who's got an awkward ball to deal with, heads it into the bro, and it bounces, I don't, I, it just loops rather, I don't think it actually bounced before Gundogan running onto it just lashed it in and it was just you just, <laughs> you just have to say well that was that was an amazing yeah. goal and all of these all, all those, of your plans, all the plans everything is forget just, about it yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, fuck, yeah. you know this is the it's way unbelievable. it's going to be this kind of a it's going to be this kind of a day and of course it ended up as you said Smurf being closer than um, than mm. maybe people were expecting after 13 seconds that it was going to be um, for which I think it would be uh, it would be churlish not to um, not to look to uh, the people who made that possible, who were um, the referee Paul Tierney and the VAR official David Coote. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, they then proceeded to uh, to show that Man City, you know. I mean, it was it was amazing. There was three huge decisions that they gave Manchester United's way. In the first half, which all, which all of which sort of kept the game on life support from United's point of view, you know, kept kept them alive. Um, obviously, there was the penalty that they awarded for this uh, handball by Jack Grealish. Uh, a technically correct decision, I think. Um, you know, he's Grealish is, is jumping. I mean, the rule we saw, for instance, in the Europa League final, uh, a really obvious handball uh, committed by the Sevilla midfielder Fernando who I think it was Matic crosses it in for Roma and it's a really obvious handball. The hand actually moves slightly out as well from the body, stops the stops the ball. Everyone in the stadium sees it, you know, the Roma bench are all jumping up, led led obviously mm. by by Jose. 
Um, everyone's seen the handball, but they decided, nah, that's not a handball. Because his hand is basically down. His hand points down, not handball. This this is where we've mm. got to now. It's a ha- it's a handball. It's a blocked it's a blocked cross. If you're going to give a penalty for handling balls that are otherwise going into a danger area, this is a penalty. But no, because the arm is in a natural position, which is this ridiculous, a uh, meaningless phrase, um, which you can apply really to any arm that hasn't mm. been you know wrenched as, out. Of uh, the- yeah, as, as Gary Lineker said, as long as it's attached to the body, you'd have to say that's a natural position for an arm. Yeah, as he said at halftime, utter utter nonsense. Okay, so but they decide no, it's it's natural position. We're not we're not going to give that. Even though the ball has actually traversed a far greater distance from Madish's foot to, to uh, Fernando's hand mm. than the ball did off Juan Bissaka's head to Grealish's hand, which, I mean, Grealish is jumping um, basically to contest an aerial ball. The ball is headed into his hand, which is behind him in the direction that he's not looking um, from like a yard away. And this is, this is a penalty. Why? Because if hand down isn't penalty, then what's hands up? Mm, hand, all the way. hand up is penalty, penalty. So the, these are the rules that we have. This is this is the great um, these are the great set of rules, the current rules because they'll they'll be changing them. They're, 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 they've been changing they've changed the handball rules so many times since VAR came in and complicated the whole situation, overcomplicated it so much. Uh, so that was a decision that they gave. I think technically uh, a correct decision. Mm. The the other two. Oh, I should mention we have uh, Mark Critchley and John Bruin coming coming up in a few minutes for their FA Cup final thoughts. Well, it's they're, 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 they to were, be honest, they're more Manchester United post mortem season post mortem thoughts because because <laughs> and I know people. Well, well, this is unbelievable. Why are you talking about? No, uh, Manchester City have a big week this week. We're gonna we're gonna get mm. the opportunity to talk about Man City. Uh, I'm going to be going to see them play in the Champions League final on Saturday. Uh, so Ken, there'll be no sh- be, there's going to be yeah, no Ken shortage will be reporting live from the banks of the Bosphorus with your customary elan yeah, this week there's no, there's, I'm looking forward to it immensely there's no shortage of opportunities <laughs> to talk about that and we will but for today we're going to focus more on the uh, the side whose season is yes. finished Okay, so the two other decisions, uh, Casemiro possible red card, which was not, which was adjudged to be a Manchester United free. What was the third decision? Hang on, did they give a free kick to United for that? Yeah, they did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I missed that that detail. I mean, okay, so that's what that is 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 a is a clear case where you can send the player off here. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a, a guy who's gone over the ball, studs up into the shin in a dangerous way. I've seen red cards given the season. I've seen Casemiro sent off this season. Actually, both of the red cards that he had were not as bad as that fell. Right? I mean, one of them was like a, pu- a ridiculous, like non-push, you know, or, or he's supposedly choking somebody. And, uh, okay. But they didn't give that. Again, it's a huge decision in Manchester United's favor. That was actually before, that was before the penalty, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was yeah. before the penalties. That was a big decision. It was almost as though they were like, well, you know, I mean, do we really want to do this? <laughs> I don't think many people watching the game, apart from all the Man City fans, wanted necessarily to see a Man United player get sent off. Just from the point of view of having a game, it might be good for the team that's already not manifestly superior and leading 1-0 to have an extra man as well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be in the referee's thinking, though. The point is, okay, they gave the decision to Manchester United. That's nice. Then this decision on the 40 minutes. This was when it was one all. United were, were back in the game, at least on the scoreboard. Um, is it Bernardo Silva gets away down the left cuts the ball back De Bruyne is coming in from the edge of the box he's going to have a clear shot at this this is going to be a goal Fred just trips him up and okay it's obviously it's a penalty on the first on the first instance I'm like that looks to me like a penalty let's see what happened there because this is what you can do when you're mm. you know you've got VAR it's like well if it is a penalty we'll, we'll surely see that all you hear then is 
check oh, check complete. <laughs> okay. Then they show the replay, which is the clearest trip that you can imagine. You know, Fred, he's, he knows De Bruyne is, is, is coming. De Bruyne has got a little bit of a start on him. He knows he's, gonna, he's not going to be able to stop him um, getting there first. So all that's left is to stop him getting there. And he tries to come across to sort of block him, but he doesn't get across with his hip or with his shoulder or with any other part of his body that he might plausibly claim, look, we were, we were going for a ball. I'm holding, I'm shielding that ball that's five yards away. I'm shielding the ball. You know, he just trips him. It's just, it's foot to, you know, leg just below knee, trips him up, blatant penalty. Not given. Listen, they're in the entertainment business, Ken. You know what I mean? No one wants to see that on FA Cup final. But how can we, how can <laughs> we have these, this, this nonsense? Now, I know that you're like, I can't believe you're talking about the referee. I have to say, right, there, there wasn't a, the game itself wasn't a, wasn't a great game. It was one of those, I think, I think, I thought City were, were kind of, quite comfortable for most of it. Obviously, the timing of the second goal for City kind of killed off the second half a, a little bit. You know, they, they scored very quickly in the second half. And from that point on, they were back to where they were at 1-0, which is, okay, all we need to do is just get through this without making a mistake. You know, and I felt mm-hmm. that was kind of, that was their their main thing. Okay, let's just keep the ball away from these guys. Don't, 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 let, don't let's not get ourselves into any situation where they can um, get their guys running through uh, into space. That's the thing that Guardiola is always obsessed about with teams. Like, you know, he he talks about it with United a lot. He talks about it with Real Madrid. These, you know, uh, great historic clubs. Guardiola's, you know, who who he doesn't think play that good football. He's just like they're very good in the counter attack. When they have space, mm. they will kill you. They will kill you. So it's all about denying them that. And City basically did effectively do that. Eventually, Garnacho came on and it looked like maybe he could he could spark something. And then there was the kind of late. You know, a couple of efforts, the McTominay jumping around, Riveran hitting the bar and all that. But death, I don't, death or glory type efforts. But it, it, it wasn't really, minutes. yeah, and they, they'd made sort of very attacking substitutions and mm. Varane was kind of, had moved up front, I think. And it was, it, yeah, I mean, there was it was high risk, but it wasn't really dangerous. I mean, there was there was some worrying <clears throat> um, aspects of it, I thought, from, you know, like the way that Ericsson made no impact. I mean, there was a moment in the first half when Ericsson was beaten by Kevin De Bruyne and then tried to foul him twice and and couldn't get to him, just couldn't get close enough to foul the guy to bring him down from behind, which was mm. which was obviously not great. He was off the pace all day. He was substituted. Um, <clears throat> late on, there was a, a, a situation with Grealish um, and Gundogan. Gundogan gave the ball to Grealish. Um, and then Casemiro was sort of marking Gunnigan. Gunnigan decides, I'm going to run to the byline here. And Grealish finds him with a beautifully weighted sort of outside of the foot pass, plays it sort of into space for Gunnigan to chase. Casemiro is nowhere. And you think, okay, Gunnigan has just has spun away from Casemiro in, in such a way that Casemiro momentarily lost where he was and then suddenly he was gone. That's not what happened, though. What happened was Casemiro saw exactly what Gunningham was going to do and just couldn't couldn't chase him. He couldn't follow him. You know, what I'm saying is if this match had gone to extra time, like, Casem- I, it's hard to imagine Casemiro would have would have still been there uh, 120 minutes, you know? Like, uh, that, these were sort of um, not good uh, not good things to see for Manchester United. And obviously, then there was the, well, the goalkeeping mistake by De Gea. I mean, at, the, at first, I was thinking, is it really his fault? It's come through a few players. It's a bit of an awkward one. It was Peter Schmeichel who convinced me that, yeah, no, this is his fault. Mm. Uh, no, I have, to, I have to say, I turned over, like, the at the moment of the final whistle, there was uh, some GA action I was anxious to, <laughs> to turn my attention to. So I didn't see any of the... Um, 
any of the post-match stuff. But yeah. I will say that I wasn't waiting around for Peter Schmeichel to tell me that was a goalkeeping error. Yeah. All I had to see was replays of the second bounce yeah. that the shot Two bounces, took. never good. Two bounces, but the second bounce was so high. It was so high off the ground that it told me that this was not a shot that was moving you know, very kissing fast, the gr- yeah. kissing Skidding the ground. Along the you ground. Know yes, like it was literally a bobble. It just like it bobbled up in the air, and De Gea was still incapable of getting across his goal line in time to to save it. It is just, it's just really bad goalkeeping. It's just a really, yeah. it's just a really weak shot to be beaten by. Yeah, I, 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 in the fullness of time, having. Having looked at it, I do agree, and I mean he's had a he's had a, a comical season in some ways. He, he, actually, the, the story of his season really has ha, has just highlighted the whole dilemma of De Gea. He is the Golden Glove, you know. He has more clean sheets than any other goalkeeper. When he's good, he's very, very good. He has yeah. to share the credit with, for that. <laughs> I, I I suppose yeah. with his um, with his uh, defenders, defenders, yeah. of course. But at key moments, he's made terrible mistakes. Um, the one against West Ham really stands out. You know, that ridiculous goal that yeah. West Ham scored where he, you know, how can you let that in? But maybe the most consequential one was was against Sevilla, you know? Um, yeah. His awful performance against Sevilla, um, especially in the away leg. I mean, there was a ridiculous goal that he um, conceded after coming out of his um box and then you know not controlling a ball but then there was the the at two all right at the beginning of the second leg his terrible efforts to play out from the back sort of leading united straight into trouble which from which they conceded a goal and, and you know that cost them that i mean sevilla obviously have gone on to win that competition um if united had come through that uh well ultimately I guess it would have been... Let's not make any uh, hasty conclusions as to what Man United may or may not have done yeah, between yeah, yeah. winning that tie and and potentially winning a final. But certainly, Sevilla, it was proven to... They were proven to have been the best team left in it, so... Yeah. Uh, I think I think yeah, his, his, no, his bad been, his his bad yeah. football like you know his uh, his bad sort of footballer footballing abilities have been a kind of an issue for some time and you know at the start of the season we were talking about how that might be a problem for United but you but you could always sort of at least depend on this like uh, good goalkeeping uh, qualities you know traditional goalkeeping yeah. qualities and then you know you, you get episodes like Sevilla and and this this and you're just like well. I mean, what what exactly are we talking about here? There's there's no reason for this guy to be one of the highest paid goalkeepers in the world, and really, it's time. Anyway, we'll talk with Mark and John maybe a bit more about that among some other things. But uh, on the subject of why I was talking about um, the refereeing, I think it's. I, I mean, since we last spoke, there was these videos of the referee Anthony Taylor being abused in the airport as he mm-hmm. in in Budapest. Uh, he obviously was the referee who at the Europa League final. Um, there was a couple of mistakes um, or, or a couple of controversial calls, let's say. He gave a, a penalty by mistake uh, to Sevilla, which was rescinded on VAR. Mourinho still seemed to be blaming him for that after the game. Mourinho obviously had this ridiculous waiting in the car park to, to abuse him. Like a, a, a pathetic sight has been charged by UEFA, should be punished to the maximum possible extent that they can punish him because he's been doing this for his whole life. He's he hasn't stopped. He's he's a repeat offender, um, and so they should they should punish him because he's he's disgusting and he's a disgrace. Um, 
He was annoyed about a couple of things, though, and I can kind of see why. <laughs> I can kind of, there's, there's elements of his of his frustration. We've already talked about that Fernando penalty. That would have been a penalty to Roma. Yeah. Randomly, they, they didn't give that. And then there was a moment in the shootout when they intervened to say, actually, Rupertisio, you've stepped off your line there. So we'll have to retake that penalty, which you just thought you'd saved to give your team a lifeline. We're going to retake it just so that Gonzalo Montiel has got a second chance to drive this stake through your heart, which he duly did. Um, mm. Now, again, that's a technically uh, correct decision, but it's, it's, a, it's a VAR decision. Uh, it's been the it's been the law that you can't come off your line at a penalty kick. I don't know why the law says this, but that's been the law since 1905, I think. Uh, certainly more than more than hundred years, right? When did you ever see it punished? Right? It was it was because it was so difficult to really tell. Did he move a little bit off his line? Mm. Some, there, well, I mean, you've got to, you, there used to be two linesmen, now there are two assistant referees who, let's face it, don't have a whole pile to be doing during a penalty shootout. They probably could step up and actually call this. Yeah, but, you know, at the same time, you can be sure with VAR. So so looking at it, um, he doesn't even really step so much as sort of almost hop off. You know, he's, he's kind of hopping on the balls of yeah. his feet, right, Patricia, this is. And then he, his, the last little hop is, is like a step forward. He, he, he doesn't to me, seem to get any real advantage out of it. But he does do it, and he is off his line at the moment the ball is struck, therefore, retake. Um, mm. Now, the problem there, I think, is that this rule shouldn't be... I mean, I don't understand the laws of the game as they apply to goalkeepers in, uh, in penalty situations. I think they should be allowed to run out of their goal. <laughs> like, you know, if they should be allowed to, to be anywhere in the six-yard box. Eight. Like, as long as they're not outside the six-yard box, I, I think that would be a fairer rule. Instead, what we actually have is a situation where they're making it more restrictive. You know, they announced a couple of um, months ago that uh, 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 clarification, this is IFAB, uh, so the law changes for next season, clarification that the goalkeeper must not behave in a manner that fails to show respect for the game and the opponent, i.e. by unfairly distracting the kicker. In other words, the Emilio Martinez. The Emilio Martinez rule. Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what we have here. The defending goalkeeper must remain on the goal line, facing the kicker between the goalposts without touching the goalpost, crossbar or goal net until the ball is kicked. The goalkeeper must not behave in a way that unfairly distracts the kicker, e.g. delay the taking of the kick or touch the goalposts, crossbar or goal net. I'm kind of like... Why though? <laughs> why, yeah. why? Why? Why not let what the an go? Third rule. At least give them a sporting <laughs> chance. If we're going to give penalties for ridiculous non-offenses like the Grealish handball, you know, because again, this is a VAR thing. Again, it's like, oh, there's been a there's been a fractional. The ball has brushed the player's fingertips. We must, you know, get together and award a penalty, you know, for this like unthreatening situation. We're going to magic a penalty out of it, and then we're also going to insist that the goalkeeper basically has, you know, has to. We're going to make it more difficult for the goalkeeper to save it. I think allow the goalkeeper to do whatever. I mean, you know, it would become well, a, it would become a skill. Advance, yeah. I don't think advancing down the down the pitch, as they would say in cricket, uh, is necessarily fair. I mean, if the kick is from eleven yards, it should be from eleven yards. You know what I mean? The kicks from the kicks um, from eleven yards. The goal's not going to move. I mean, it's 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 twelve yards. It's eleven eleven meters. Elf yeah. meter. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I I do think that like. Uh, well, I, I was going to start saying the rule should stay the rule just because it, the rule has always been there. I, I don't know. It's not something I'd, I've thought about. You know, the, I saw, certainly if, there, yeah. if the rule is in place, then it should be enforced. I mean, the, the, because, you know, there are, like Stephen Cluxton, I'm sorry to again bring Jay this, but I mean, Stephen Cluxton like charges down the pitch and has saved numerous penalties in Ireland finals because he's like way off his line. I mean, 
if it's not policed, then why wouldn't you do? And I don't, I don't see the problem with that. I think that I think it would be good to make it more difficult to score penalties, especially mm-hmm. penalties are being awarded for for um, silly, uh, you know, things like this, yeah. uh, this Grealish handball or, or, or whatever. Um, so what? So what? Like so, when I start my run up, you are allowed start advancing towards me. Yeah, say say you can't you can't come out of the six yard box. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what a goalkeeper... Different goalkeepers would come up with different solutions. I mean, it would make it a bit more <clears throat> individual. You know, the the, mm. the one video that was doing the rounds after this Sevilla thing was 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 Dudek in the Champions League final, where he literally is, is, is almost... He, he's kind of um, zigzagging out of his goal towards the Milan... Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, Kicker. this, this yeah. was a, this was illegal at the time, but in reality, these these rules were not really enforced. VAR has changed that, so you got this uh, moment when the referees intervene at like the basically to kill Roma. At, you know, they, they're they're practically dead anyway. They're they're almost without hope, yeah. but just to extinguish their last hope with it, with just sorry, sorry. Uh, just we have to enforce a really, really pedantic rule here. <laughs> That's just it's it's kind of it's kind of maddening. But then you get this situation where this referee is being abused, and obviously Jose Mourinho is a is has a lot of responsibility for that. But I really I feel as though these types of decisions, these types of VAR, uh, the the way that VAR has changed the perception of what referees doing is equally as destructive a force in terms of people's attitude towards referees, the suspicion of corruption and conspiracy that, uh, that increasingly is, is like the normal way to react to a decision that goes against your team. You know, this has happened quite quickly. This actually used, used to not be the, the way, you know, a relatively short time ago. And now it's like, it's everywhere. You know, it's like but the problem, you know, you got a problem. So, uh, on the one hand, I'm not saying that Mourinho shouldn't be punished or like lay off Jose. Like Mourinho is a disgrace, and it's and he's terrible. And there there are always going to be people like that who are going to do this. Like he's been persecuting uh, referees and blaming uh, his failures on them forever, like for his whole career. And he's yeah. not the he's not the only one, and that's bad. But what you have now is a situation where referees are forced into intervening in micro situations, but also. Reviewing evidence, reviewing video evidence, and making wrong decisions like that—that that De Bruyne, Fred decision—is one of the worst. I can't like, it's 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 just such a clear penalty. It's a it's a tr- it's a trip. It's deliberate. It's trying to prevent a goal. It's I cannot understand how they don't give that, but they don't. And so then you're left then you're left to wonder why. And the reason is, in my opinion, the reason is. The, the guy's incompetent. Like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's he's, he's made a mistake. This is another mistake. You, you can make mistakes looking at video several times, just the same way as you can make mistakes re- refereeing a match in the old-fashioned way or the non-top level way that it that still exists. You know, in in real time. But it's just harder for people to understand how you can make the mistake when you view the evidence. You know what I mean? So I think that is why. I mean, I think it's. I think it is something that has to be considered when you look at a, a disgraceful scene like what was happening to Anthony Taylor and I kind of feel as though this is becoming more sort of common I mean there have been a lot of these kind of disorderly scenes in general but in terms of the the kind of invective that's directed at referees this uh, innovation which was meant to make their position easier and take pressure off them has 
in effect, made it much more difficult. It's made them much more central. It's it's had them making big decisions on, on all kinds of uh, ridiculous minor things that they actually wouldn't have needed to get involved in before. And then when they do make a mistake, uh, everybody's screaming, well, this is obviously corrupt because how, how can he not give a penalty there? I mean, how, how many times does he need to see this before he knows that Fred has tripped De Bruyne? And, you know, luckily for them, City won the game. Imagine City hadn't won that game and that decision. After the last after the last time Man United beat, uh, beat City in the decision in that game, can you imagine what would have happened? Um, I think certainly the... Uh, the Jose in the car park thing would have been the second most viewed manager video of the week. So, Fiat asked that question. Pretty strange. Yeah, very disappointed, yeah, but there you go. What have I become? My sweetest friend. I mean, at the time I thought that you were completely in the right. Everyone I know. But now I think. Goes away. She just played in, just played in. Yeah. I'm surprised you're really asking that question. And you could have it all. No, well, it doesn't matter really what you think. My empire of dirt. Yeah, you weren't there at the time. I will let you down. You want a, an international player. I will make you hurt. And you hadn't had the frustrations I had. If I could start again. You've not played at the international level. A million miles away. And you hadn't been accused of taking an injury, so... I will keep myself. What you think doesn't really matter. I would find a way. Well, to talk about uh, the game on Saturday uh, and the outlook for Manchester United in a, in a bit more detail, we're joined now by John Berman. How are you doing, John? I'm okay, Ken. Thanks for having me. And also by Mark Critchley. Uh, how are you, Mark? I'm good, thanks, Ken. All good. That's great. Um, you know, Mark, recently I was reading, um, obviously, the sad death occurred of the legendary novelist Martin Amos. And uh, in the course of the tributes that were being paid to him, um, I saw uh, a piece that I, I missed at the time, but it was Martin Amos's report of traveling as a fan, uh, I guess he was a Man United fan, to the 1999 Champions League final uh, on the occasion of the previous, tra- as, as yet still only English treble. Um, and he wrote this uh, piece about you know getting up very early and going to the airport and traveling there with United fans and coming straight back after. And it was, I mean, you know, it, I, I guess ninety percent of it was about logistical arrangements. Ten uh, percent, if that, was about the match. One of the most legendary in uh, in Champions League in European Cup history, I suppose. But really, it was the it was the logistics that um, that captured his attention. And I understand, Mark that your own uh, appreciation of Saturday's FA Cup final may have been similarly tinged by the uh, effort that the Athletic uh, forced you to go through to get there. Yeah, I didn't realise I was going up against Martin Amos. I certainly feel even worse about this. You're the Martin (laughs) Amos de nos jours. Well, yeah, we'll see about that. That's not entirely a good thing from my understanding of Martin Amos's back catalogue anyway. But um, yeah, no, so the job that I was given was to um, experience the fan experience um, on a weekend when obviously the country 
wasn't wasn't working and the train strikes uh, meant that no trains were running out of Manchester. So, yeah, that was my FA Cup final was involved going back to uh, Chorley, where I'm from, on Friday night with a mate of mine from school who's uh, United home and away, etc. And getting up at half four in the morning, getting a coach from Leyland, which is... Uh, in Lancashire, for people that don't, Leyland, Leyland buses is that the thing people might be familiar with. Uh, they're world, they're world famous. Every, everybody knows Leyland. Yes, Leyland, of course. Um, Phil Jones's hometown, and this, and actually, the coach is organised by a few of Phil Jones's mates, and he he travels on it sometimes as well. So uh, oh, there was that nice little bit of colour, and yeah, it was um, eventful, very uh, all very welcoming. Um, I hit the wall at about 10 a.m., I would say. Uh, and it's a wall that I, I'm still kind of peeling myself off now as we speak. <laughs> Thirty six hours later. But, uh, no, uh, enjoy. And, and, yeah, I would say that my piece actually has even less of uh, a historic football match in it than, than Martin Ames's does. It must comprise about 2% of it because there's a line in there about Okai Gundogan's goal and the fact that in the end everybody was in the ground in time to witness it even if it only was after 12 seconds but um, but yeah no, it mostly just focused on what a, a shit country England is to try and get around these days <laughs> Yeah, John um, what, what was your impression of, of the match itself? I mean City, did they ease to victory? I think they might have eased to victory yeah, it's, it was one of those wins where uh, a team is going for, say, a title or edging through a cup tie and they do just enough to hold off the other opposition. But they also give the opposition the idea that they've made a, a, a competition of it. Um, hmm. Speaking from a Manchester United side of it, I could you could say that... what What, what positive can Manchester United take out of it? Well, they didn't get gubbed. That's the thing. The the humiliation of another 6-3 or something like that didn't happen. And there were occasional flickers that Manchester City looked troubled. Um, I think particularly uh, in the performance of Garnacho when he came on, uh, I thought it was excellent. Um, but I suppose if you're talking of Manchester United uh, in the round... When you talk about a performance of someone like Garnacho, then you have to compare it to um, the uh, impact of players like Jaden Sancho, oh dear, about hmm. uh, Veghorst. Well, I think we're sort of beyond discussing what Veghorst does because we know that it's nothing. Uh, and um, and the thing is, um, you know, I, 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 talking about of going you know, uphill and down dale to go to these finals. Well, like, you know, I was. I was one of those fans in 99. I went to Barcelona, you know, woke up in a resort, uh, stayed in a resort in Spain to which, whose name I have no recollection, uh, you know, woke mm. up on a train heading for Valencia with someone waking me up because otherwise I would have ended up in Valencia alone. You know, that's everything. I've, I've been yeah. through that. But, you know, yeah. years on, years on, when you think of it uh, and you think of, at the point that Manchester United were there, the crest of Manchester United, sporting Manchester United, you realise actually how difficult it was to get to that point and actually how much more difficult it will be for Manchester United to get to that point now when you look at the standard set by Manchester City with this best-in-class um, 
academy of football that Pep Guardiola has grown through means that many people don't agree with, uh, and this, you know, this how good Manchester City are because. Listen, last time I was with you two, we debated 99 versus uh, the present day. It's a different game. We accept that. But I think the the parameters and the conditions are so much harder um, now. And if Manchester United wants to get back to that stage, uh, the thing that I came away thinking was it's a long, 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 long road back. Yeah, I mean, I think we we're going to be able to talk about Man City a lot over the next few days because obviously they they are uh, they're approaching the summit. Uh, it's you know the big match in Istanbul next week, so there's going to be plenty of City talk, which is why I want to talk mainly here about Manchester United, whose season is now over. And I wonder, Mark, if I can ask you uh, crudely uh, to give a mark out of ten to Eric Ten Hag's uh, performance in his first season as United manager. Specifically, Eric Ten Hag's performance. Eric Ten Eric Ten Hag is the, is the new guy. This is he's the captain of the ship now. Uh, what do you give him at ten based on his first season? I'd give him an eight, to be honest. An eight. I think. Look, if you were here last summer, who seriously even thought they would get top four? I think that has not to me. Be. No, me neither. Did you even think they'd finish above sixth? Really. I thought that they would. I thought that they would finish somewhere between fifth and eighth, but they have exceeded that, that expectation. It's still quite a range of positions there that you've. But I didn't want to tie myself down, but I did. I did. I did state uh, definitively that now the top four was unlikely. So they did. What? What about you, John? Uh, you, would you go as high as eight? Uh, seven point five seven. I think. I think one of the things about Sen Hag is that, okay, uh, if you look at it from. Um, but if you achieving objectives, they won a trophy, right? Fine, they got top four. Okay, that's maybe above expectations. They got to a final, uh, another final, and they didn't get cubbed. Uh, you know that, that again is almost an objective uh, achieved. One of the problems is though that I'm not entirely convinced that having achieved that in one season. That what we the the progress the, the the progress that follows is guaranteed. That's one of the issues that I've got mm. because um, I was at Brentford. You know this dark darkest day, darkest hour before the dawn. Um, and the thing is, you this know, is the second game of the season. The second game of the season, yeah, uh, in baking heat, yeah. and uh, you just thought there's no way almost that the United can come back from that, and they did. And there was a power of recovery, but the thing is that they've never quite removed, or have never quite removed that ability to think that this could fall apart at any minute because it's built on such shallow foundations. Obviously, the the um, the Liverpool game, the Newcastle performance, the Sevilla performance. There's so many where you think it, this is on very shaky foundations. And the other thing with um, with Sen Hag is. Does the football fit into what Manchester United fans want as a template of great football? It's still quite negative, I'd say. Uh, there's a lot of hanging on for dear life, hitting your forwards, hoping Marcus Rashford, Garnacho, whoever does it for you. It's Is it better than Oli Ball? Yes, but not by much. Uh, but do I expect there to be better progress than that? 
Yes, I do. But um, I think, again, as I said, the standards from one club in particular and maybe from another in Newcastle, we'll have to see how they go and we'll see how Arsenal go. But, you know, we're back actually to this, this discussion that I probably had with you and, and Mark and, and Owen and Miguel and all the rest of it. This idea of, like, a transfer window has got to, <laughs> has got to turn over the club. Has got to has got to transform the club rather than you thinking this is a really strong team and you know just a couple of more changes and and they can do it in the style that we've seen with Manchester City we've seen with Liverpool where only minor alterations are needed to to keep that team competing. United is still miles behind where they want to be. Yeah, I think this is one thing I was thinking about last night. Um, they end the season in, in a weird position and it's a strange position. It's everything that John just said there is that it's a good season and there's been progress and you're left thinking, well, there's still so much work that needs to be done. Um, and it's it's quite rare for a team to... And I've just argued really that Ten Hag's overachieved on expectations beyond what a lot of people thought was possible. But to still arrive at that point at the end of it and think well, this lot needs to go, this lot needs to come in, this position needs sorting, this position needs sorting, is a, is something that is pretty rare for clubs. So I think it's ultimately, it's a continuation of the issues that were in that were in place at the end of last season. I mean, they spent upwards of £200 million in the in the market last summer, but that couldn't really mask the scale of the rebuild and it's about how you rebuild as well and like um you know I think you'd look at the players that came in last summer and you wouldn't really criticize any of them for the seasons that they've had uh particularly uh those that have certainly played a, a, a big part in in what's in the progress that's been made but I don't know like um Casemiro's as old as Casemiro is right now and isn't going to last forever Christian Eriksen yesterday I think and, and over the last few months really I think the limitations of his position in this team and what he can do and the fact that he has to come off after about an hour every single game mm. that's that's been a glaring aspect of what's of the last few months and the sticky form that there's been over the last few months how you start to you know we'll probably go into bigger discussions about strikers and and De Gea and the goalkeeping situation etc but how you begin to uh, make the improvements that need to be made within FFP, while and the understanding that, that a lot of the things that we're hearing at the moment is that they essentially need to sell players in order to be able to buy significantly and do the work that needs to be done. There'll be some business before that, but they need to sell. It's something that they've never been very good at. So there's just so much work that needs to be done. Um, it's work that's really we still need, needed to be done last summer as well, and it's work that may need to be done the season, the summer. 2024 mm. that's just the position that United were in at the end of last season and, and it was never going to be fixed in one season's time okay well I mean the idea that they need to sell is interesting who do you think uh, I mean because obviously there's always speculation about players Manchester United are going to bring in and not so much maybe about who they're going to have to get rid of in order to make that possible who do you think is, is on the way out now I mean uh, Maguire is someone I've been mentioned, but you know that doesn't sound like that lucrative a deal. When the Daily Mail report that Manchester United will be paying him ten million pounds to leave the club, you know what I, you know what I mean? It doesn't seems as though it's under, undercutting the profitability somewhat. I mean, is, are there any other players? Um, uh, not necessarily who they have to pay to leave, but but who who they might be looking at as potentially players they don't need that they could get some money for. Um, I think look, I, it, the squad is as 
big and as bloated really as it's ever been. It's not felt like that at times um, when there's been particular injury problems or you, you're, you're looking for somebody to come in to be able to do a job and not there's been nobody there. But it is still quite large and look, I'm thinking off the top of my head, the list of names, you've obviously mentioned Maguire, I think his position is becoming pretty untenable and has been for a while and he, he will probably think so himself and think that if he wants to be a player of the status that he had a couple of years ago, he needs to play football regularly, that's natural. Other players you'd think, I don't know, somebody like Scott McTominay perhaps hasn't been playing as much as he was a couple of seasons ago. I think with him there's a case that actually getting him off the books would help with these new FFP sustainability regulations that are coming in because uh, this whole amortisation thing he's obviously an academy player so it's, it's just a matter this this system just makes it profitable to to get rid of like your you know Young the players, heart and soul yeah. it's just absolutely it's absolutely crazy. outrageous isn't it it really is i mean I, I, I don't know if you chaps saw an interview with david beckham after the uh, final I didn't. I didn't uh, say. I saw. This? I saw Bex uh, certainly hanging out. Finally, he was. He's fairly yeah, well, visible. Yeah, well, I didn't yeah. see his interview. Well, d- d- Dave, David is David. As David does, David did a bit of a mix zone turn, which you know, yeah. ever the pro. Yeah. Uh, and he talked about. Um, uh, he was asked actually the difference between the Manchester City potential treble team and obviously the the one that did it. And he talked uh, about uh, how Manchester United was made up of homegrown players and. Um, and this obviously annoyed the Manchester City fans because they're just like, well, you're not homegrown anyway. You're from, you know, you're from Leighton Stone, and uh, and actually they had the. And then of course we moved into the debate of uh, what was um, what was Manchester United's transfer bill of that time. You know, they were the biggest spenders in English football and all this type of thing. Mm. But actually, the, the interesting point is that you make is that for Manchester United, if that had been in an FFP era, they might have had to sell Beckham, Giggs. Uh, you know the Neville. Well, they definitely would have been incentivized to sell them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and uh, it, it does seem to be the wrong way around, doesn't it? That, that like, um, I've often thought, you know, the the the, the best teams in world football history uh, are like a you know a Barcelona that is built from La Masia Academy. Maybe that team, Manchester United team, Real Madrid teams of the past, you know, that are built around a Butragueno or, you know, Michel or someone like that, mm. or, or a Milan team, you know, built around, you know, Franco Baresi or something like that. And it, the financial fair play rules, as, as we've stated, don't appear to um, favour that anymore. Mm. So how are these great teams, these great dynasties in Manchester City say, you know, if Manchester City ever had to go down the FFP route, well, who are the players they could cash out? Well, Phil Foden, 100 million, thanking thee. Uh, you know, Chelsea, Mason Mount, having to do that now. Yeah. I think I, um, I think the point, though, is that, like, um, United probably aren't, uh, for all these, you can say, <laughs> no disrespect to him as a player, but United aren't going to build around Scott McTominay, are they? But I've always thought, Mark, that Scott McTominay you know, is the type of player that Fergie would get 15 games a season where it was like, you know, Scott, I've got this game in mind for you two weeks down the, and you do a marking job on, I don't know, Gianfranco Zola or whoever. Mm. You know, he's the type of bits and pieces player that maybe in modern football you're not really allowed anymore. My point is more that um, they don't. They only need to sell Scott McTominay or whoever or these home ground players. They only would be prevented in this scenario from building a home ground team because they haven't managed the budget properly yes. in the first place. It's, it's not something that City would really get into because 
they'd probably be a lot more savvier <laughs> in terms of their squad. Well, build. they'd find a sponsor from somewhere, Mark. I think we know that. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you know, we should point out, obviously, with City, they, they sold a whack load of players this year. I mean, you know, they sold yeah, Sterling they did, yeah. to Chelsea. You know, they, did they make money on transfers this year while signing Haaland? So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, when you've got players who are just playing brilliantly, it's always easier to sell them, which is um, a problem that uh, Man United have had the, the opposite side of that problem and trying to get rid of players who haven't played well. Let's talk a little bit then about some of the guys that have been linked because this, this Mason Man thing is is um, kind of the big story at the moment. I saw him at the Formula 1 being asked about it and giving a sort of non-committal answer. Um, it seems as though Chelsea want more than £50 million for a player who's already in the last or who's going into the last year of his contract. Obviously, Chelsea have maybe overpaid for a few, so they're looking to make some back. Um, what do you actually make of Mason Man, though, uh, Mark? Because he is a player who, despite having achieved a lot, won the Champions League, played for England in international tournaments, there's a lot of people he doesn't seem to impress. You know, I saw Roy Keane last week saying, basically, not for me, you know, <laughs> Mason Mount, not for me. Um, why then do people like, I guess, Eric Ten Hag, you know, Gareth Southgate and Frank Lampard rate him so highly? I think... Um Look, I, I I get that when people say that about Mount, and um, I think he's prone, particularly when I was like covering England more closely and doing a lot of their games. He 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 doesn't have a real impact at times, and I think he's sometimes an easy fall guy for that fact. You know, it's often the case that if a, if a player isn't making that many decisive plays in possession of the ball, particularly, then you look at them and you think, what exactly do you do here? Um, and it does feel like that mount falls into that category sometimes. But it, I think it's a category that actually other players have fallen into in the in the past. And once you find a particular role for them, once you uh, you know give them something that's a bit more defined, then they actually you know they they play an important part within the team structure. And I think that's probably how Ten Hag sees it. I know everybody talks about mounts work out out of possession, and it's something that. Um, I think United could desperately improve on. I think what Ten Hag would like is uh, a player in that midfield who can take the ball off the back four and bring it up the pitch, and that's exactly why he was so keen on Frankie de Jong last summer. Um, I don't think Mason Mount's that player, but I think in the kind of restricted market that United are probably working in, um, with, again, the FFP considerations with homegrown quotas, things like that, uh, and simply availability, because that comes down to it, when you're a club in the United's position and you're having to prioritise and look at different positions on the pitch because there's several that need attention. John, John, where do you where do you come down on Matt? Are you, are you would you be advising them? You gotta, you know, you gotta push the butt out for this guy. You gotta, you gotta make this happen. This guy can be transformative. Or are you like Roy Keane saying? Mm, yeah. I'm not in the camp of thinking he's a transformative player. I think he's a good player. Um, I think. A couple of years ago when, I suppose, Chelsea were in that position where they switched from Lampard over to Tuchel, Mount was a very important player for them then and I think he had a good Euros. But that's a couple of years ago and things haven't quite gone as you'd expect since then. I think, obviously, Mount, as several other players have found, has got lost in, well, the Chelsea circus and uh, no disgrace in that. Um what 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 does that transfer remind me of? I mean, it may be a little bit different at times in the career, but it does remind me a little bit of when Joe Cole joined Liverpool. Um, oh, Joe Cole, uh, though. Joe Cole was 
was kind of burnt was, out at that stage. I mean, yeah, phys- yeah, physically, yeah. I don't think he was up to it anymore. You know, who knows what might have happened no. if, if he'd I mean, gone I, I, when he was yeah. Mount Sage. Maybe, you know. He could, yeah. no, I mean, I, I really like Joe Cole as a player, but yeah. But I, 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 it's one of those things, actually, where consider it's actually a regional thing, you know. Um, players moving from London to Manchester or Liverpool, is that a common thing? Uh David I mean, Beckham, you know, you've, already, you've already mentioned he was. Well, he was David good. had been there since he was, you know, thirteen or fourteen. Teddy Sheringham, of course. No, yeah, but Teddy wasn't like because he drove his Ferrari down Deansgate, you know. Um, Paul Konchesky uh, to Liverpool. Yes, well, that's, this is what I'm. This is what I'm getting at, Mark. Yeah, I mean, even even Ray Wilkins, who was a very good player, was not particularly popular in Manchester until he sort of left. And because he was that. because he was from London. Because he was from London, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Very parochial, you know, in in, in England, uh, and I, I I do wonder. I mean, listen, okay, Mason Mount moves to Manchester, and they live in that Cheshire enclave that you know Mark will know all about. And uh, uh, not saying that he lives there, but um, you know, and um, it, it, yeah, it, and and you do live in this sort of footballer world, of course. But it does seem. I mean, you know, if you, I'm not sure that. It's a big. I mean, who else has made the move up there? Londoners. You see, Peter Crouch, of course. You know, was pretty settled in Liverpool, born mm. in Macclesfield. You see, he's a man with northern roots. So, um, that that would be one thing that to, to, to point out. Um, is Mason? I mean, okay. Mark is more abreast of what Manchester United want for next season. What are the? Who are the players that are, you know top? Top level that Ten Hag is obsessed by. Harry Kane is the top one, isn't he? He's another, the, he's another Londoner, you know. Another Londoner. Well, that's you see that is interesting. Maybe maybe he wants an enclave of Londoners. You know, Harry Kane and um, Harry Kane and Mason Mount living next door to each other, like Steve Bruce and Peter Schmeichel used to do thirty years ago. Maybe mm. something like that. Um, and then there's a goalkeeper as well. I, I presume is part of it. Um, who would that be? David Raya of, of Brentford, maybe. Yeah, very good with the ball at his feet. So you've sold you, you've sold off the Golden Gloves, David the or rather you've you've let him go. You've let him. I think. Leave. I think the Golden Glove. The Golden Glove himself. I think um, Wembley was another a big occasion when De Gea let himself and Manchester United down. Uh, I'm reminded of. Um, uh, the game over in uh, what was it? Um, what's the city called in Poland? Sorry, remind Gdansk. me. Gdansk. Gdansk. Yes, yeah. I'm reminded of the game in reminded of the game in Gdansk that, that Mark was at um, with the penalties, and then his goalkeeping performance at Wembley was not fantastic, was it? By any means, no. I think that's that's it for him. You know, he's not quite Jim Layton, but you know, time's up, mate. Uh, and then. Uh, then you're looking at. Well, before we before uh, we move on there, I, I just want do you do well, you, do you think that's the case, uh, Mark? That that's you know because you see conflicting reports about the hair. You know that Manchester United are going to extend his contract was was one thing that I saw. I mean, what do you think they should do, and what do you think they will do uh, regarding the hair? Um, should should do. I would say it's probably time now. So release him. He's finished his contract. I mean, they they, they have the ex- option to extend it. Is that the situation? I mean, he his contract will expire, and if they don't want to renew it, then he'll leave. 
the the situation is that his contract is expiring. They, you know, most United contracts come with a one year extension that can get triggered. That was already done last year, yeah. so his contract's up. Um, there's again, you say about conflicting reports. I think if De Gea was doing a lot of interviews a couple of months ago where um, he'd be asked about the situation, and he said that ah, it's it's going to be fine. It's it's all going to be agreed. Don't worry. Um, the fact that it's still not. 100% over the line confirmed and on United's website, I think um, it leaves still a little bit of a grey area there. Um, and I I mean, I, what what do I think will happen? I, I, <laughs> you know, I hate making predictions like this, but I, I think it, I think he'll probably stay. But look, I, I think there's still a possibility that he could he could go. I think that Ten Hag's answers on him over the last month, two months. Um, you mentioned about the Golden Glove there. He's always been so protective of him and he's always tried to uh, you know, talk up um, positives about his performances. It is true that he's got the Golden Glove. It is true he got the most clean sheets. Whether clean sheets should really be reflective of a goalkeeper is a different debate. Look, he's used those arguments. You've been able to poke holes in them. But I thought it was really interesting yesterday that... Um, when he was asked, he was asked two questions about De Gea in his post-match press conference. And the second one was about his kicking and his distribution. And mm. having already gone through the routine of defending him and talking him up, you, you know, he had to take a step back and, and admit and concede really that, yeah, when it comes to De Gea and his distribution in particular, there are things, aspects of United's game that they desperately need to improve on that haven't, you know, have held them back and um, that needs to be fixed. And look, I don't think there's any way of fixing David De Gea's distribution at this stage. You saw yesterday how often he was kicking it long. Well, it was, um, the, the, the worst thing almost about yesterday was how much better Ortega was than him at all this basic stuff. And this this guy is like, uh, you know, he's a he's a, an extra at Manchester City and he was better than De Gea. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, you, you only have to look at that first goal. Uh, Ortega's long kick up field plays a part in that. And I know... Look, it's a long kick up field, and I think Pep afterwards was talking down the fact that it was part of some brilliant scheme. Um, but he, he, that kick goes into the right hand side of the pitch where Haaland's gone to, where he can win an easy duel. I think it's against Casemiro, but he's, he's, yeah. it's a duel that he's always going to win. That's that's the kind of kicking, even if it's long, even if it's a big kick up field, it's the stuff that you don't see De Gea do because he's not thinking about what areas of the pitch it needs to go. He's not thinking about... He's just thinking get rid of he's it. He's just yeah, thinking yeah. get rid of it. And that's the difference. And that's what's holding United back. And I think you've, you've just noted a little bit more, I don't know whether you call it scepticism or whatever in Ten Hag's, the way that he spoke and the way that he spoke yesterday about him. And that, again, I think that just plays into the fact that even now, um, with about three weeks to run on this contract, we're still we're still not got a definitive decision on it. Yeah, John, um, I guess we we don't expect Vagors to be sticking around. It didn't ultimately go that well for him. They need a, they do need a centre-forward, though, Um uh, and my question is, how far do you think? Do you do you, do you believe that they're seriously going for Harry Kane, who I see um, now being linked with Real Madrid, who obviously have lost Karim Benzema, is going to Saudi Arabia, and, and maybe they think Harry Kane is is going to be there, um, you know, next Galactico. Um, would you urge Manchester United into a bidding war against Real Madrid for Harry Kane? 
I very much see it. It's interesting, Harry Kane. I, 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 so, I mean, I don't, I don't know, John. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. There's, a, there's a reports to just. I mean, Real Madrid are interested. We're in bullshit season here, chaps, aren't we? And we, we, just are. We, we are. We are. We're in. We're in bullshit season. Yeah, all we can say, all we can do is look into our own hearts yeah. and say what's there. What's in your heart regarding Harry Kane? He is from London, but he is on the other hand very good. So. He's very good. Yeah, he is from London. He could possibly live in Wilmslow and, and, and deal with it. You know, it's not that different from Hertfordshire. Could he live in, you know, one of the environs of Madrid, uh, where, say, Steve McMahon had made his own home, but Michael Owen did not. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, I think, actually, uh, talking about Beckhorst, talking of David De Gea, um, I think what Manchester United managers have lacked since Alex Ferguson, among well, uh, among many qualities is that ruthlessness of getting rid of people. Uh, I mean, uh, Lou Van Gaal attempted to do it uh, in a rather ham-fisted way. Um, Jose Mourinho even, you know, would play this hard man stuff but wasn't able to get rid of them. What, whoever owns Manchester United, and of course this is the other issue that hangs over it all, yeah. uh, and to which, you know, we could do another four-hour special without actually getting anywhere of, of what's going to yeah. happen. Um Someone needs to do what Ferguson did at a certain point, which is just get rid of players, bomb out players. And if if you're Eric Ten Hag, and um, this guy David de Gea, as nice a guy as he is, as long as he's been, and he's let the club down, get rid of him. Uh, you know, Valtbeckhorst came in, nice lad. Uh, you know, gave, gave everyone a smile. You've almost got to give him the Fergie Ralph Milne treatment. You know, thanks for coming, Ralph. See ya. You know, and that's. It's something that United have lacked for for a long time, uh, and a lot of that is to do with these. The, you know, actually, the deal that that Mark talks about. Uh, your contract finishes, but because the club is looking to save a bit of money and make a bit of money in the transfer market, you get offered this extra deal, so you've got some worth in the transfer market. Well, actually, it ends up as a completely false economy. You end up in a state of you know, um, Leyland's Phil Jones. Uh, yeah. uh, qualifying for twelve years of money. Now, bless him. You know, obviously that is a fairly tragic story as a, as footballers go. In the sense that, okay, he's a millionaire, but he's very unhappy with the way he's things had a, have he's gone. had a hard time. He, he's had a hard time, but he has been. He has certainly been well paid, and, yeah. and they did, and they gave him a, a contract extension after he had already sort of, sort of fallen out of the picture yeah. a little bit yeah. on the basis that they surely were going to be able to sell him, and then obviously um, that that didn't materialize. No, exactly, and, and, and there's been too much of that. Now I don't know if it's if it's easy for other clubs to do it. I suspect other clubs have a similar problem. Tottenham are going to have a similar problem. Chelsea obviously are going to have big issues with this. But there does need to be a point where someone like if you place Ten Hag in charge, you've got to give him the self determination to say, "I want Harry Kane. I want Frankie De Jong. I want David Raya." Let's say that. Let's just try and make it happen. And the big problem is, of course, the ownership and. Let's see if big Jim Ratcliffe or the Qataris come in. Let's see if that changes. But I'm not convinced it will because there's so much that, as I said at the outset, Manchester United have got such a long way back to to be where they want to be. Okay. Well, just just, um, then, Mark, uh, bearing in mind what John's been saying there about ruthlessness, um, to to bring it back to someone he mentioned earlier on in this conversation, Jaden Sancho, who... You know, as far as I can make out, it seems to be 
the closest thing to a scapegoat that's emerged uh, <laughs> among you know on the United side among you know it, when when they're looking at this and thinking what, where did this go wrong? I think there's a general acceptance. Man City are just a much better team. You know the result ended up being narrow. You know we gave it a we gave it a go. Uh, we weren't good enough. We didn't really expect to be. But where was Jaden Sancho all game? And where has he been for two years since he's, you know, I can kind of, I can feel a little bit of that going on. Like he, his his bad performances have almost been under the radar <laughs> to, to, to a surprising extent for, for a guy who costs what, more than 70 million pounds. You know, there's usually a bit more kind of, maybe there have been so many other problems uh, that, People haven't really identified him as a problem. The drop-off, though, between what he was doing for Dortmund and what he has done for Manchester United is stunning. You know, it's it's way more than your usual sort of Bundesliga, you know, you expect a bit of Bundesliga attacks or, or whatever. He just looks like a completely different player. And this has now been with different teammates. You know, Ronaldo was there for a while. He's not there anymore. Different managers. You know, there was all that. Now there's Ten Hag. And the one thing that's consistent is this underperformance. So what do you think is going on with this guy? And what do you think, how do you think United are thinking about him at the moment? If, if ruthlessness is something they want to bring back, then is Sancho on the, uh, on the block? I think that um, <laughs> maybe if you wanted to bring ruthlessness back, but like there's almost so many different other things that need to be done before that. Like we were talking about the players before that need to be getting off, get off the books that I, I don't think Sancho is a huge priority. I don't think that, um, but, and, and he's obviously, there was this season, just this past season as well. He had that break, extended break, which Ten Hag put down to physical and mental um, issues that he had. So, but it, it, being totally frank and <laughs> trying to be a bit more ruthless in the answer myself, he hasn't, delivered on what he expected and I'm it's one thing that I've got more wrong than anybody else because I thought having watched like you having watched him at Dortmund I thought that this would be a player that came in and um, you know at the time I didn't particularly rate United as a as a, as a great team but I, I thought he would be a, 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 a great player in a not so great team um, it hasn't happened I think you could his situation reminds me a little bit and I'm not I don't think it's like for like, but it does remind me a little bit of um, of Grealish's at City last year in that he has little noticeable impact on games. It comes back to what I was saying before about Mount as well, kind of. But, but with Grealish, I think the difference was there was always a bit of a misconception about Grealish in that um, he never really got like loads of goals and assists. He was more a guy that would take the ball, move the ball, do a job. Um, and mm. people were looking for something different with him. So... With Sancho, though, like that was people had a misconception about the player Grealish was. With Sancho, I just feel like nobody really knows anymore the player Sancho is because he he did used to get lots and lots of goals and assists, you know. So so goals and he, he was you know averaging more than a goal involvement per game, which is which really very very few players are capable of doing, and and that's kind of the expectation I suppose that he came with. Yeah, um, and look, I in the past I think you put that down to everything you said there like there was he came in under Ollie and the, the worst part of Ollie when it was going you know going spiraling the drain um he came in at the same time as Ronaldo and that was a huge gravitational force that pulled everything away from every other player in the team um and then look but it, that was a long time ago we've had Ranyu, we've had Ten Hag since he started the season well dropped off I think there is something in this idea that I see a lot that he needs players around him that he's a, he doesn't have that burst that you expect from a winger that you perhaps see from Garnacho in his 
when he comes mm. off the bench. Um, that is something that just engages fans and engages, you know, observers more um, than Sancho's style of play. He needs players around him. He takes a lot of touches on the ball. He can look a bit hesitant sometimes. Um, and maybe he'd be better suited to a system that was had a lot more possession than United have had this season because they have, I think, as John mentioned, a lot of it has been counter-attacking stuff and he just doesn't seem to thrive in those types of situations. Um, yeah. I, I think... I think it, Ten Hag's still playing him at the minute, but it, sometimes it's felt a little bit more out of necessity, like just because of injuries in other places or because he doesn't quite feel that Garnacho's ready to start. But personally, I would have started Garnacho for Saturday. I, I think we had to do a predicted team, and I said that. And that was the one player that I changed, him for Sancho, um, from the team that started. I, I think he's a player that just has an impact, whether it's late in games or whatever. Yeah, He makes things happen, and Sancho doesn't at the minute, and that's the difference. So do you do you feel John that that uh, you know third time third season it could all it could all come go for Sancho because I, I mean the the concern that I would have for him at this point is I don't see how he gets in the team because you know if if United sign a striker we'll probably be seeing quite a lot of Rashford on the on the left uh, the manager paid a hundred million euros for Anthony and Garnacho as Mark has been saying looks much more exciting you know he's direct he's fiery. Um, you know, Ten Hag obviously didn't pick him ahead of him for the for the cup final, but I think that might be different next year. So I'm I'm kind of looking at it going, Sancho might get it together, um, but he's going to be sitting on the bench and no one will know. I think Garnacho. Uh, sorry, uh, well, Garnacho. <laughs> if you, if you, let's talk of ruthlessness, ruthlessness. You could cash him out now to, to Real Madrid for hundred million. Say we'll take Harry Kane, um, but. Setting that aside, I think Sancho would be a fantastic Crystal Palace player. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and I don't say that mockingly. What I'm saying is that. So you're saying he reminds you of of Zaha, who also didn't um, succeed at Manchester United. Yeah, I, which, does, which doesn't lessen Zaha's quality as a player. He's one of my favourite players to watch in the Premier League. But you, you also the, the style of play that you're playing, and I think. Um, United don't have the players that link with Sancho's style of play. Um, he's a top-level club. He's lacking a bit too much in consistency. Um, now, you know, at, at a club like Palace, at West Ham, or someone like that, you can just be a street player, have have fun, and still be a good player. But it, it's almost as if, listen, if a player's taking breaks mid-season for whatever reason, um, and, you know, it's someone that's not reached the potential, again... Let's get back to this ruthless thing. Get rid of him. Get let him be someone else's problem. That has to be the way that Manchester United think. Now they paid seventy six million for him again, which goes back to the, the the financial mismanagement. The way that they always get the worst out of these deals. Um, it's a shame. He's a talented player. He's probably a good lad, but it's not worked out. And then you have to, you know, move on to the next one. And the thing is, as as we've stated, there are other players to come in fulfill that role well you know how much can you get for Sancho well okay there's one to add to your pile okay well John is pulling the plug on Sancho um, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see how that one we'll see how that one uh, uh, develops over the summer and uh, it's uh, one thing's for sure it's going to be a big transfer window uh, it's a big window a big window of transfer speculation uh, at Manchester United for another summer can I say uh, John and Mark thanks a million for coming on and talking to us about all that today Cheers, cheers. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. We need to get back to facts here because there seems to be a bit of emotion creeping in. What you've just said really isn't true. Well, no. Not what I said. I'm not saying... I don't know what you're saying, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean, I, I, all I Make this if, you've got, if you find someone on the street... You already interviewed me. He's a goat, he's a god, he's a man, he's a guru. You cheeky bastard. You're a microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan Designed and directed by his red right hand He yeah. did. I've, I've heard... I've, I've Who did? Let me finish. What happened to Chelsea? For fuck's sake. Well, this is going standardly everywhere. Put the cameras up, you are. Let's have a chat. Everybody would think that the appointment of Jose Mourinho would have been a great appointment for Manchester United to win trophies. That they would win trophies under Jose Mourinho. Well, I don't think everybody would have thought that, but I think somebody who didn't know a lot about football would have thought that. What, the Manchester United? Jose Mourinho? Yeah. You cheeky bastard. For fuck's sake. Okay, Ken, there's uh, plenty of international football coming up this month. Two, me- two games for the men's team, as well as a friendly and a World Cup squad to be announced for the women's team. So if you're interested in that, or in the upcoming Champions League final, which Ken will be attending for us on Saturday, Manchester, United- Manchester City against Inter- Internazionale of Milan... Why don't you think about giving the World Service a rattle? It's five euro a month plus VAT, depending on where in the world you're signing up. And you can just go to secondcaptains.com forward slash join if you're interested. We'd love to have you with us. We'd love to have everyone with us, wouldn't we, Ken? Yes, absolutely. Everybody. The more the merrier. Everybody. The more the merrier. Exactly. All that remains for us uh, is to wish you a very happy rest of your bank holiday Monday. Hope you're out enjoying the good weather. Uh, we and Owen will chat to you on the World Service tomorrow. And remember that the Second Captain Podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Sloan. August Ballack. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. 
Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 